You're listening to the New Blue Review, your weekly dose of Jewish culture and current affairs. I'm Benji Shulman, and if you're joining us on 101.9 High FM or the Jerusalem Post, welcome to the show. It is good to be with you. And rather a contrasting program we have for you today. Later on in the program, we're going to be visiting New York and seeing Jewish places and experiences perhaps you hadn't done if you had been to the city before. We're going to be speaking to Paul Radensky. He is the chairman of the old Broadway shul and also works in one of the Jewish museums in the city. So he'll be bringing us some very interesting aspects of Jewish life in New York, no doubt. But before we get to New York, we're going to be going to the other side of every possible divide you could think of, whether it's geographic or uh, philosophical or theological or whatever, because we're going to be starting out with a writer from Iran. Now, uh, you will appreciate that I don't often cover Iran and Iranian writers on this program, but this one has a very specific Jewish and Israeli feel. The writer we're going to be covering today is a guy called Jalal al-Mahad, and uh, he wrote a book in 1963 talking about his trip to Israel. But he wasn't just any Iranian. In fact, he was a very famous Iranian revolutionary intellectual. Uh, he had, was very famous for having written uh, a number of books and pamphlets criticizing the then Shah of Iran in the 1960s for what he called an obsession with the West. Western toxification is the best English translation that I can give you of some of his previous books. And because of this particular writing style that he had, he was very, very influential, particularly amongst Islamic critics of the Shah of Iran, and people who we would know today who took over the country in the 1979 revolution. This particular writer is very interesting because, as I said, he wrote this uh, book criticizing the Shah, but at the same time, for a variety of reasons, was very interested in things like kibbutzim. And he learned about a kibbutz through literature that he found in Iran, and through that began to look into the rest of his Israeli society. And once he started doing that, the Israeli embassy took note, and they invited himself and his wife to come on a trip to Israel. And he wrote a travelogue about his experiences, which has now been republished as something called the Israeli Republic. Now, what was interesting is not just that it was an Iranian uh, and a revolutionary one at that that went to Israel and wrote about it. The way he wrote about it was using very traditional Shia Muslim metaphors, particularly ideas about how a state should look. And it suggested that somehow what he saw in Israel is a way that he would like Iran to look. And it was such a uh, bizarre way, if you like, of of describing Israel that uh, he really upset all of these religious figures that had previously been uh, very supportive of him, including Ali Khamenei, who would become 10 years later the supreme leader of Iran and the kind of guy who shouts death to Israel on the news. So that is very interesting. And the book itself uh, covers all sorts of different aspects. So it looks at his experience with the kibbutz, the experience with the education of Israel, his experience at Yad Vashem, and uh, takes us through what Israel was like for an Iranian intellectual in the 1960s. And also, not always so positively, after 1967, he writes some really aggressive stuff about Israel. And it's it doesn't kind of fall into the pro-Israel or anti-Israel camp, but nonetheless reminds us about what the country was like back then from an Iranian perspective. And is absolutely a fascinating 
account of the country. It's been republished by a number of Israeli authors. I think that they uh, make too much of the fact that uh, he kind of compares Israel and Iran. But nonetheless, I think it is very, very interesting. So if you if you like this, it's called the Israeli Republic. It's called Jalal al-Ahmad. He's the name of the author. And I'm very happy to say that we've managed to get a little bit of audio about um about this book, uh, we found, managed to find the second chapter for you from a, t- a website called TLV1. There's a show that they have there called Israel in Translation, and they've read this uh, book out. And so we're going to listen to the first chapter called Israel, a Guardianship State. Welcome to Israel in Translation. I'm Marcella Shulak. On Saturday night, Jews everywhere will celebrate Purim, the commemoration of the saving of the Jewish people from annihilation at the hands of Haman. The story of Purim took place in the ancient Persian Empire, which is today Iran. Today's podcast, in honor of Purim, will be highly unusual. I will not read literature by an Israeli. Instead, I will read from the essay, Journey to the Land of Israel, by the Iranian writer Jalal Ali Ahmad, based on his two-week-long trip to see Israel in February 1963. This essay, needless to say, was and remains highly controversial. Because Jalal Ali Ahmad called 1963 Israel a model state and a guardian state. I hope you find it as interesting as I do. Jewish rule in the land of Palestine is a guardianship state and not another kind of government. It is the rule of the children of Israel's new guardians in the promised land, not the rule of the inhabitants of Palestine over Palestine. The first contradiction arising from the existence of Israel is this, that a people, a tribe, a religious community, or the surviving remnants of the twelve tribes, whatever designation you prefer, throughout history, traditions, and myths suffered homelessness and exile, and nurtured many dreams in their hearts until they finally settled in a way, in answer to such hopes and in a land neither especially promising nor promised. It was thanks, in fact, to the force of time the necessities of politics, the clear vision of their guardians, or the dictates of economics and unfettered capitalism. I will address each of these in turn. Now, although one does not dare compare Israel's leaders with Abraham, David, Solomon, or Moses, peace be upon them, in any case, today's prominent politicians can be called, if not prophets, then certainly guardians— and can be likened to the other 124,000 prophets of Israel. Ben-Gurion is no less than Anoch, and Moshe Dayan no less than Loab. These new guardians, each one with his own prophecies, or at least clear vision, built a guardianship state in the land of Palestine, and called to it all the children of Israel, of whom two million live in New York, and the other eight million in the rest of the world. And the most important aspect of the miracle is this. The guardianship state of Israel, with its two million and some inhabitants in that long and narrow land, like it or not, now governs and acts in the name of all the 12 million Jews scattered around the world. If only one example will suffice, we can call to mind the Eichmann trial. Israeli agents captured him in South America, brought him to Israel, tried him, executed him, and even scattered his ashes at sea. 
All this in the name of six million Jews who were slaughtered in the crematoria of a Europe leprous with fascism before the establishment of Israel and on the basis of the policies of a regime whose name, customs, and laws the Germans themselves are ashamed to mention. This I call a miracle. If only on account of that example, we cannot but consider Israel a guardianship state and its leaders guardians. Those who march onward in the name of something loftier than human rights declarations. You could say that the spirit of Yahweh is upon them in those prophecies, for it was not until Moses had murdered and fled to the wilderness that he had the brand of prophecy upon his breast. Secondly, the present territory of Israel in no way resembles a country. If by country, we refer to the commonly held conception, something on the order of a continent. The guardianship state of Israel is a small span of earth, approximately the size of the province of Saveh in Iran, less than 8,000 square miles, and how inhospitable. If Moses, peace upon him, knew what a rocky place he was leading his people, if he could fathom what a shallow joke the river Jordan is compared to the Nile, he would never have called it the promised land. It would not have brought the people for all those years through suffering and hardship. But in the modern world, numbered among tiny so-called reputable countries such as Switzerland and Denmark, Iceland and Qatar, Kuwait and the Principality of Monaco, for those of us who are part of the East, this same narrow territory of Israel lies in arm's reach, like a fist on the table of the Fertile Crescent. It is a source of power, and also, on that very account, a source of danger. Its power or danger depends on your perspective on the world. If your viewpoint is that of the Arab politicians, Israel is a source of danger, preventing the unification of the Islamic Caliphate, of which, after the downfall of the Ottoman Empire, so many people have dreamed. But, if you look with the eyes of an Easterner like me, devoid of fanaticism and hyperbole and resentment, worrying for the future of an East, of which one end is Tel Aviv and the other Tokyo, and knowing that this same East is the grounds of the future events and the hopes of the world tired of the West and West toxification. In the eyes of the Easterner, Israel, with all its faults and all the contradictions concealed in it, is the base of power, a first step, the herald of a future not too far off. In these two senses, I call Israel a guardianship state. In these pages, I will try to attempt to retell what I came to know of it, my goal is only that you come to know the disposition, the words, the yes-buts of a penman from this corner of the world, and a Persian speaker, faced with the reality of the children of Israel's new country in this corner of the East. To put it plainly, Israel is the curtain Christianity drew between itself and the world of Islam in order to prevent me from seeing the real danger this is exactly what drives the Arabs to distraction. I also have grounds for debate with the Arabs. It is true that the Palestinian refugees, like a ball chasing the Arab politician's bat, have with time become accustomed to parasitism. But pay close attention. For more than 10 years, these same Palestinian refugees have been paying the penance for someone else's sins in that hellish cauldron. From the bones of the Ottoman Empire, this last piece, this Palestine, that was set aside as a sweet morsel, sits like a mace on the table spread between the Persian Gulf and the River Nile. Or is it perhaps like a scarecrow, 
keeping anyone from extending a hand or foot beyond his own plate. I will go even a little further. If one day the country of Israel vanishes, who will Arab leaders blame for being the only barrier to Arab unification? Is it not rather that the very existence of Israel and the fear that they have instilled in the Arab heart is the cause of the modest unity and internal concord of the border guards on this side of the world? And if your lot is to play the game of democracy, and that too in a land which, as long as there was a god, was crushed under the boots of the pharaohs of earth and heaven, again, learn from Israel. In any case, for me as an Easterner, Israel is the best of all exemplars of how to deal with the West. How, with the spiritual force of martyrdom, we can milk its industry, demand and take reparations from it, and invest its capital and national development, all for the price of a few short days of political dependence, so that we can solidify our new enterprise. And this is the last point. The Persian-speaking Easterner in particular considers the Jews in a historical perspective. During the ancient reigns of Darius and Xerxes, it was I who sat Esther on the throne, appointed Mordechai to the chancellery, and ordered the rebuilding of the temple. And although now and then, in the markets and alleys of Rei, in Nishapar, at the governor's instigation, or for a commander's profit, I have leapt into Jew-killing, nevertheless, the tomb of Daniel the prophet in Susa still performs miracles." And the graves of Mordechai and Esther and Hamadan are no less holy than the shrine of the saint of pure lineage from the prophet. Are no less holy than the shrine of a saint of pure lineage from the prophet. But leave off layering those obligations and the load of foolish self-satisfaction on the shoulder of God's people. It is enough for me that this very Daniel the prophet was once my chancellor, and I don't care who is his king. Jalal Ali Ahmad was born to a clerical family in Tehran in 1923. A teacher all his life, he joined the communist Today Party in 1943 and quickly rose through its ranks, becoming a member of the party committee for Tehran before breaking with the Today in 1947 in protest over Soviet influence. Ali Ahmad was an influential and prolific writer and social critic whose body of work includes short stories, Notably, the collection and exchange of visits, novels, including By the Pen, The School Principal, and A Stone on a Grave, travelogues, including A Straw in Mecca, A Journey to Russia, and A Journey to America, anthropological studies, essays, reviews, and translations. But his best-known work has been translated into English as West Struckness and West Toxification. A Cultural Critique of Westernization in Iran. In 2012, Rustless Books published his polemical work based on his journey to Israel as the Israel Republic. Ali Ahmad was married to the novelist and translator Samin Daneshvar. The couple had no children. He died in 1967. The book was translated by the Jerusalem-based Samuel Thrope. I'm Marcella Shulak. Till next week in Israel in translation. You're listening to 101.9 Chai FM. I'm Benji Shulman and this is the new Blue Review. And you were listening there to a chapter called Israel, a guardianship state in the book that's recently been republished called The Israeli Republic. It's by Jalal al-Ahmad. 
and has been translated by Samuel Thorpe with an introduction by Bernard Avishai and it is published by Restless Books and the audio that you're listening to there was from TLV1 and Israel in Translation. Thank you very much to them for that. For this particular show today, we are off to the United States, to New York in particular. And we're going to be discussing and talking about things that perhaps you haven't done in New York. Uh, We're not going to be going uh, and seeing the Statue of Liberty or checking out Central Park. Uh, We're going to be looking at something perhaps a little bit different. We are going to be talking about the old Broadway synagogue. A synagogue perhaps you haven't visited, definitely worth your while visiting if next time you're in New York. And also about the Museum of Jewish Heritage, a living memorial to the Holocaust. And the person who's going to be helping us with the discussion today is Paul Radensky. He is president of said synagogue and as well uh, assistant director in terms of Jewish education. Paul, welcome to the new Blue Review. Thanks so much for being with us. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for inviting me, Benji. So first of all, uh, how long have you been president of the old Broadway synagogue? So I've been president there for 16 years, although I have been re-elected re- uh, several times. Mazel tov, mazel tov. Uh, Thank you. Jewish election, I'm sure. So there was uh, was this very carefully planned. <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, give us a little bit of a sense of where it's located and, and, and what kind of shul is it exactly? So the Old Broadway Synagogue is located in West West Harlem, uh, which is um, north of Columbia University. So essentially, it's an area that um, once upon a time had a very mixed population of Jewish and Irish and German, and then later on, uh, African-American population and to some degree, Hispanic population. And, um, and to some degree, it's becoming more mixed now as well. Um, it's... Um, uh, had been a pretty poor neighborhood with a lot of housing projects. Actually, now Columbia University is building a campus two blocks away from the synagogue. Um, but uh, I think it's still quite a mix, and that mix is actually reflected in the population of the synagogue. And am I correct in saying that it's the last remaining synagogue in in Harlem? So it, it, it is, to some degree, yes, you're correct. Um, Chabad now has an, uh, at least two... Uh, two places that are operating in Harlem, and uh, last year a JCC opened up in Harlem also. So, so I would say it's, it, it, I don't know, last remaining, it might be the longest going at this point. And, and what kind of shul is it? What, what is the community that has traditionally been there if it's the longest serving shul? So it's, it's I would say that the first layer is that it's an East, an Eastern European immigrant synagogue, that this is the kind of synagogue that the immigrants from from Russia and Poland at the beginning of the 20th, end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century is built. Um, and that's definitely still part and parcel of the synagogue. Um, and more recently, it, we have a number of African-American Jews, Israelis. Um, there's, there's a guy there now who's from Turkey. Um, so it's a pretty... There are people who are converts uh, from different backgrounds... So it's, I would say it's a pretty diverse population, so in some ways reflecting what uh, New York is like. Now, talk to us a bit about the actual uh, Harlem. I don't think, you know, initially you think of Harlem as not 
Jewish doesn't always uh, spring to mind, although you seem to suggest it's going undergoing a little bit of revival. But actually, at some sure. point, uh, Harlem was a very, very Jewish area. So it was in the at the end of the nineteen, the end of the eighteen hundreds, in the uh, beginning of the twentieth century, up to the First World War. It was one of the largest Jewish communities, if not the largest Jewish community, in terms of a, a kind of a concentrated area uh, in in New York City. Um, a lot of Jews who came to the United States from Eastern Europe, the first place of settlement was often the Lower East Side, which is in Lower Manhattan, actually not far from where I am now. And then, um, and then they moved quickly moved into second places of settlement. So one of those was Brooklyn, another one was Harlem, and there were others as well. Sometimes people just got off the boat and went straight to Harlem. But it was it had I think two or three hundred thousand people in its heyday. Maybe three hundred thousand is a lot. Maybe something like two hundred thousand people before World War One, and then after the war, it really started. People, uh, people started moving out to um, the Bronx, uh, to Long Island, and other other places. So, so Harlem, Harlem as a Jewish neighborhood uh, at its height was a pretty short-lived phenomenon. But it wasn't so short-lived that they that the Jews were able to build a number of institutions and synagogues. A number of those buildings are still there, although they're usually used now for churches. And in some respects, this revival that you're talking about, of course, most of the Jews uh, in Manhattan at least live in that sort of Upper West Side uh, area sure. next to Central Park. And what you're kind of seeing is, uh, particularly in West Harlem, I guess, the growth of the Upper West Side sort of starting to tickle into the bottom end of Harlem where, where you guys are. Yeah, no, and that's actually been happening now for a while. And there's a, a, a lot of new housing that's being, you know, apartment buildings that are being constructed, like, for example, on Frederick Douglass Boulevard, which is one of the major streets, major north-south streets in Harlem. There's a, a number of new uh, condos, beautiful new buildings that are going up and renovation of some of the older buildings. Um, so there is actually uh, uh, quite a bit of quite a bit of people moving into Harlem now as well, at least Jews moving into Harlem. Um, there's there's it, a famous uh, congressman, isn't there, who, well, no, I don't know if he, he tried to become a congressman by starting his own party called the Rentist Too Darn High, uh, just, that was his platform. Oh, wow. <laughs> I, I, the rent is pretty high, uh, and, and, and in Harlem it's probably not that much cheaper. Um, I mean, I'm sure it's cheaper than other parts of Manhattan, certainly than the Upper West Side. But, um, you know, every, many places in Manhattan are quite desirable. So um, Harlem is not super cheap. But still, it's cheaper than other places, relatively speaking. So, you know, we do see some people moving in there. And given the history of the synagogue, the fact that it's so old and it's got, if you go there, beautiful uh, windows and, and all sorts of stuff, has, has it seen a lot of history, a lot of interesting people who've, who've come through and visited over time? Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, no, it definitely, it definitely, it definitely has. I mean, certainly we've had our share of politicians coming uh, to visit the synagogue, and um, uh, there are people. You know, uh, there's a guy who's a director in Hollywood whose grandparents uh, were. I think his grandfather was. Uh, I think the the treasurer of the synagogue, um, and a um, number of famous rabbis have been at the synagogue. So there, there have been. Uh, some famous people, but you know, every every once in a while, I'm contacted by somebody. I'm in contact with somebody right now who had his bar mitzvah in the synagogue in the 1940s or the 1930s. There's a guy who died a few years ago, um, named Bob Tartel, who uh, had his bar mitzvah in the synagogue. I think in 1939, 
and uh, we put a picture from from the bar mitzvah up in the wall of the synagogue. Uh, and I love that that sense of continuity of history of the past, um, and and yet how it how it creates a kind of a warmth and a, a sense of family in, in the present and hopefully in the future. And and do you get a lot of like students coming that are, are based at some of the universities around there? Is that is that that help make up the population? Yeah, we do have some. We do have some, um, and we hope that we'll get more. Um, fortunately, the students at um, at Columbia uh, are, are um, well equipped with uh, Minyanim and the Hillel and so on, and and even City College has has uh, facilities, not necessarily facilities, but they certainly have programs as well. But we definitely do get some of them, and um, we'd like to see more. But we're also looking to expand by having more families come to the synagogue. Um, you know, we have a, a number of families with small children now, and we hope that we'll get more of them. Now, one of the striking features uh, that, that certainly the first time I ever went to the synagogue when I visited uh, in New York was you walk in on a Friday night and and, and the, the, the Chadodi was being sung in effectively a gospel tune. Uh, and and that came because there is a small part of the congregation that is made up of of black Orthodox Jews that were part of Harlem uh, during the period that, that you were talking to us about, which I found quite a remarkable thing coming from from South Africa. Can, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Um, so yeah, so um, we have a number of uh, African American Jews or black Jews who attend the synagogue. Some of them were associated, but not all of them were associated with. Um, there was a place called the Commandment Keepers, which was a a black synagogue um, that was uh, a few blocks to the east of the of the old Broadway synagogue, um, and um, uh, that synagogue, unfortunately, there was a there was a kind of a battle. No, this is the proof that they're Jewish because they fought with each other. Um, <laughs> but they had a, a battle, and 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 I think some of the congregation moved that to New Jersey. Um, but some of the people started coming to Old Broadway, um, and they are really committed and knowledgeable and uh, a fantastic addition to our congregation. Yeah, certainly if you want to hear uh, uh, the, the one guy I met, uh, Sadia, uh, he started his own a cappella group when he went to university called Company B, and they're excellent. So uh, uh, it he definitely, is, you know. He, he, is a, he is a fantastic singer. He is he is truly a fantastic singer and a, and and probably a brilliant person also. Um, and uh, to hear him daven, it's really an uplifting experience. And yes, he definitely uh, he knows his nusach, but he also definitely has that gospel sound as well, which is just um, it's a, an incredible fusion. It really is. If, you, if you're interested, uh, Sadia McIntosh, go look him up on uh, on Facebook or Google or whatever it is, uh, Company B, if you want to hear some of his songs. It's a, a very surreal experience hearing that on, on a Friday night. And, <laughs> and, and, and and it's a completely fully functioning synagogue. You guys have a rabbi, you do regular shirim, you, you have an excellent cholent. Yes, well, uh, now we're we're between rabbis, so we don't have a rabbi right now. But we do have the shirim and and the cholent. Uh, I like to think it's pretty good, um, uh, and uh, we're always trying to expand. You know, we um, uh, last year, last couple of years, we were adding a, a daily mincha minion, 
last year was a little bit bumpy, but the year before was better. And we're hoping this coming year to have that daily Mincha Minion, and, and uh, hopefully we'll do more. Yeah, absolutely. That actually does sound great. So people want to attend, they want to uh, go be part of a Minion, come to a Friday night. Where are you guys located, and can they just rock up? They can certainly come. Um, we are located uh, on Old Broadway, which is a small street, which is... Um, Parallel, essentially parallel to Broadway. It's about a half block east of Broadway, and it's between 125th and 126th streets. Um, and that's so 125 and 126 streets. And that's uh, closest to the one train, the 125th Street station on the one train. Oh, there you go. And you can just tell them that that you heard this this uh, show uh, and to ask for Paul because he will definitely be there, uh, and and he's very welcoming. Uh, yeah, sorry. And if okay. they come on Saturday morning and they say that, we'll give them an extra piece of food. <laughs> well, you see, there we go. Don't say that we don't uh, make sure that you looked after uh, here on 101.9 High <laughs> FM. Now, Paul, uh, moving over to something slightly di- uh, different, because you don't only just uh, work in the synagogue, you are also, as I mentioned, the assistant director for the Museum of Jewish History. Um, Heritage. Heritage, living uh, a living memorial to the Holocaust. It's quite a long name for a place of work, don't you think? It is. It is pretty long. Fortunately, I don't have to say it every day. <laughs> uh, we sometimes just call it MJH. MJH. Okay, that's the that's the Jewish uh, the Jewish shortened abbreviation. In case you're <laughs> concerned. So, so what is it that you guys do? So, um, we're a museum that's dedicated to um, the history of the Jewish people in the modern period. Um, and with a focus on the history of the Holocaust. Uh, we have a core exhibition that has three floors. The first floor is about Jewish life before the war. The second floor is about the history of the Holocaust. And the third floor is about Jewish life after the war. So that, I would say, is our main focus. So there's the exhibition. We also have a very, uh, a very robust education department and a robust public programs department. And talk to us about the actual exhibition itself. A lot of time... In uh, Jewish museums, you, you, there is a very strong stress on the Holocaust itself. But you say that you guys try and make sure that people understand that there was this whole world before the Holocaust happened. Sure. So the, our first floor is about Jewish life before the war, and it and presents various aspects of Jewish life about religious life, communal life, education, uh, immigration, uh, getting a job, also uh, the rise of anti-Semitism, family. Not in exactly that order. Um, but um, so so there is that pre- presentation on the first floor. It's done through artifacts, uh, actual artifacts, um, some of which are really quite amazing. Um, one of the artifacts that we have, which is really amazing, is we have a sukkah decoration from Budapest before the war. That was a, a hand painted uh, piece, which is just uh, really stunning. And what kind of groups come in to learn at the at, at the museum? So we have all different kinds. Um, Obviously, we have the general public, uh, walk-up visitors, but we have lots of school groups, a lot of public school groups, private schools. I work, I, one of the things in my portfolio is that I work with Jewish schools. So we have Jewish schools across the uh, denominational spectrum that are coming to the museum. Um, and uh, I also do uh, programs for them, and I actually do professional uh, development for teachers in Jewish schools also. Oh, seriously, big load. We're talking to Paul Rodensky, talking about synagogues and museums you may have not been to in New York, and we'll be back right after this. 
Hi FM. You're back with the 101.9 Hi FM. I'm Benji Shulman, and this is the new Blue Review. We're talking to Paul Rodensky about uh, the old Broadway synagogue, about Holocaust education. Uh, Paul, what do you think of the new uh, approaches, or rather, new generation? Uh, how do they view the Holocaust? Is that a change that you're seeing as an educator? I, I think it's going to be a change. Uh, I, you know, the one of the things that we've done here at the museum very effectively is we've used survivors to help tell the story of the Holocaust because there's nothing really as gripping and as exciting uh, and as moving as listening to a survivor, somebody who was actually there. Because it's a, it's a real, it's a living bridge to the past um, and um, there's really nothing quite like it. Uh, as you know, the survivors are passing away now um, and, and, I mean, they have been, but uh, it's really getting on in years. So one of the challenges we have is how to make it continue to make the Holocaust important and relevant, uh, you know, within with the absence of survivors. And how are you trying to address that challenge at the moment? So um, one of the things that, that, that we're doing is we're training the, the children of survivors and the grandchildren of survivors how to present their, their family stories, their parents' or grandparents' stories. That's, that's one aspect of it. Um, you know, other aspects are probably trying to have a kind of a broader view of, of what we need to do in Holocaust education. Um, uh, I mean, one of the things, uh, one of the aspects that, that's been important to me is looking at uh, resistance in the Holocaust and rescuers, trying to look at some of the more positive aspects of the history of the Holocaust. That's not necessarily connected with the survivors so much, but, but in terms of challenges to Holocaust education and going forward, I think as time goes on, uh, how people responded is going to be, how the victims responded is going to be more and more important. Now, obviously, I don't want to get too much into politics on this particular topic, but have you found that the current uh, way in which American politics is being conducted, has it brought maybe more people or more attention to this issue? Are people drawing comparisons or, or starting to think about uh, this issue in a different way because of what, what's happened in America in the last sort of year? That's a, that's a good question. Um, I'm, I'm not really sure. I know that when Trump was uh, you know, initially elected, people were saying things like that. But, um, you know, at this point, I'm not really sure if that's, if that's the case. You know, just my own personal feeling as, as uh, somebody who studied history, that, um, you know, we like to say that history repeats itself, but that's not exactly true. You know, some things tend to, some patterns tend to, tend to repeat, but that's not exactly the same as repetition. And so, and every phase in history actually is, is different. It's more, it's more linear. So I think in some ways what we're seeing with, with, with the current administration is is different than what we've seen in the past. So it's hard to make a kind of a comparison to something that happened in the past. Right, absolutely. Now, one of the other fascinating aspects of the museum that I've seen is that there's a whole other exhibition simply devoted to portraits of of survivors uh, uh-huh. and, and their lives. Uh, can you explain to us what's the thinking behind that particular exhibition? You know, it's, it's actually one of the things that uh, my colleague was saying. You should be ready to talk about that. Um, well, I think that it's, you know, again, if we're talking about survivors as being really the people who convey um, that sense and that immediacy of the Holocaust, then why not 
present those portraits in a very dramatic way and, and uh, enable people to connect with that. So actually those portraits are on the facade of the building here, I believe up to the third floor on, on actually two sides of the building. And these are people who are associated with the museum um, and, uh, and in that way have contributed in terms of Holocaust education in a major way. Um, uh, so I, I think it's really mm -hmm. dramatic, and, and they're magnificent. I don't know if you've seen on our website, but they're really magnificent portraits. Yeah, what was interesting for me is the even the process of the photographer. Uh, he said it was a really difficult uh, project. It was something that really took it out of the photographer because of, of the portraits. Uh, you know, you, you kind of really realize who the people were uh, and the age that they were and what they went through by, you know, by going through the process of even taking the photographs themselves. Right. What I will also say, I mean, I, I know a number of the people, not all of them, but a number of the people are in the photographs, and uh, these are extraordinary people. They really, really are. Um, uh, as survivors, as people who have been able to survive, and not only just survive, but to thrive, and then to give back. Um, really, I, 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 I mean, I could tell you some stories about some of these people, just Extraordinary, extraordinary human beings. So and why, why don't you why don't you give us an example? It'd be uh, I think really nice for people to hear what happened to survivors after they got. Because obviously we we hear often about what they did on the in the camps or whatever, but but it would be actually amazing to hear you know what people did after they returned. So um, okay, so uh, one of the survivors that's pictured is uh, Ruth Pogursky. She um, survived uh, by pretending to be a um, Polish uh, laborer. Uh, she was in a convent, essentially, but she was working. She was a laborer in the convent in Germany. And, and the way she survived was that she pretended to be mute the whole time. So she didn't talk to anybody. Um, so because, because she was actually originally from Germany, and uh, if she spoke, people would, would it would be a, a dead giveaway literally that that she was a german jew so um so she pretended to be a polish laborer a mute polish laborer and then after the war she came here and she got married and she created a family um and um and a very successful family and now she also speaks for us and you know she's she's in her 90s and wow. incredible person i mean just incredible i'll just tell you one other person actually um one of one of our speakers is a guy named max lerner He's also his pictures on the on the facade of the building also, and he um, uh, he he came here just before the war. Um, actually, came here I think during the war, as a matter of fact. But he was from Austria, and towards the end of the war, uh, well, he was he was I believe drafted in the American army. I believe in '43. I was just talking with him about this, um, and uh, he was sent back and worked in intelligence. Um, but because he spoke fluent German. He uh, was impersonating an F, a, a, a Nazi officer, wow. and uh, I happened. Um, he he wrote he wrote a number of books. So he wrote a, a, a novel that's based on his experiences. So my daughter read the novel and she was very excited about it. Um, and I said, "Well, would you like to go meet him?" And she said, "Sure." So we went to meet him, and uh, he showed me his Nazi uniform and Nazi daggers that he has. Um, it's pretty amazing. It must be quite an awkward experience seeing a Holocaust survivor with a, with a bunch of Nazi paraphernalia. Um, yeah, yeah, but he, but he came. But remember, he came to the United States just just before the war started. Okay. Um, and fortunately, his family, his immediate family, survived also. Um, so his personal experience is a little bit different than 
than than somebody else. And he was fighting them. I mean, he was and he was fighting them as part of the uh, the American Armed Services. <laughs> That's an absolutely uh, incredible story. And 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 you also have done quite a lot with the architecture of the building in order to give people a, a bit of an experience of the place. Uh, some greenery in the middle of, uh, except for Central Park, isn't kind of known for its green area, right? What's that? I mean, New York? Yeah, we have a few green areas here. No, I mean, what in the museum itself, you've kind of created a bit of a garden and a, a sure. architectural space. Sure, well, we have space. probably referring to the Garden of Stones, which is 18 large stones that have been hollowed out and have trees growing out of them. And, and I think that that's symbolic for the idea that out of something that appeared to be dead, in other words, that, that, that Jewish life on some level after the war, or during the war, I suppose, appeared to be dead, but nevertheless uh, has... has you know, really come alive again and is blooming again, and I think that's what the symbolism of our, our Garden of Stone is. Garden, Garden of Stone. Sorry, uh, I think that is so. And in general, it's a really beautiful place, the museum here, because it's at the tip of Manhattan Island, you know, park and surrounded by trees and the water. It's absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, it sounds like a, a absolute must. If people want to go visit the museum, uh, when is it open? So it's, it's open every day, not on Shabbat and not on Jewish holidays, um, uh, but it's open every day, I believe from 10 to 5.45 p.m., and it's open uh, later, um, it's open uh, till 8 p.m. on Wednesdays, and it, it may even be open till 6 p.m. I think that we're actually changing our hours to 6 p.m., but I'm not sure we've done that yet, but for sure from 10 a.m. to 5.45 p.m., uh, Monday through Friday, and then uh, on Wednesdays till 8 p.m. And you can just pop in. What is there a cost or? There, there is a cost. Um, you know, and and now I'm embarrassed because I don't know what it is. I, I believe it's twelve dollars a person. Okay. Um, but all of this, by the way, is on the website. So it's www.mjh.mjhnyc.org. Okay, yeah, and you'll also be able to see some of those portraits that we've been talking about. Uh, if you're interested yes. in, in that, there really are some beautiful portraits on the website. You can kind of uh, have that experience uh, as well. Definitely worth a visit on, on that sort side of things. Uh, Paul, I wasn't going to do this to you, but we have a bit of extra time on the interview, so I think it's, it's actually just necessary also for people. Uh, you are a very dedicated clock collector, aren't you? Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> sure. What 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 uh, what drove you to to collect clocks? I mean, I ask you because it's become a, a little bit a part. Uh, there's been a number of like podcasts and, and stuff in popular culture about clock collectors all of a sudden. So uh, that is why I thought about it. Uh, what, what? Why do you find clocks fascinating? Um, okay, that's a good question. I, I wasn't expecting to talk about that, but okay. Um, <laughs> You know what, I guess I'm intrigued by uh, things that are mechanical um, and uh, kind of the symbolism of a clock, of of marking time. You know, time to me is one of the most valuable, is the most valuable, well, one of the most valuable things that we have. Uh, Maybe, maybe one, maybe the most valuable, but certainly one of the most valuable things. And and being able to mark that I think is important. And then I think that I, uh, this idea of, uh, of creating a mechanism you know, uh, uh, a real kind of um, uh, physical mechanism to me is very intriguing. Somehow, um, I've always I've always been interested in how things work, um, and uh, I like the idea. With terms of the clock, um, I like most of the clocks that I have are are 
are mechanically driven, either weight-driven or spring-driven. Um, and I have to tell you, the weight-driven, I've been thinking a lot about astronomy, which is collect- connected to the clocks, too, because <laughs> maybe you might be sorry you asked this question. <laughs> but, um, but, but, you know, I've been interested, uh, interested in astronomy. I guess when the, when the um, New Horizons went to visit Pluto, it, it sparked my interest. But the, the idea that, um, uh, you know, we, we live in this incredible universe, and of course, time is based on astronomical observation, as you know. Right. And yes. um, uh, so the clocks in some way reflect that. Um, but the, but the, the cosmos is extremely interesting. It's, it's fascinating. The sun is fascinating. So, uh, and gravity is fascinating. And in a clock, you, you kind of have all of those different components coming together. Besides all the sort of highty-flighty philosophical stuff, they're actually just kind of cool, right? I mean, you've got a lot of cuckoo clocks and a lot of, like, uh, clocks that do cool things. They just tick. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I like that. I like that. To me, to me, it's a certain kind of ingenuity. But I will tell you the downside of clocks uh, is, is important, at least the mechanical clocks, is that they require a lot of attention. Because like any anything else that's mechanical, they wear out. They need to be repaired um, and serviced. And uh, you know, it, it helps if you're independently wealthy right. <laughs> to be able to do this, which I'm not. <laughs> so I have a bunch of clocks that are not. I have well, a couple clocks anyway that are not working now because I have to take them in. And um, I'm, I'm afraid my wife's going to find out. So uh, so she's know, not listening to this it. podcast, don't worry. What's that again? She's not listening to the show, so don't panic. Oh well, let's hope not. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so uh, that's certainly a, that's certainly a danger. Uh, that they, that's an expensive. It's an expensive hobby. And, and 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 for Shabbat, do you do you wind them up before Shabbat and let them go, or do you just also give them a break? Um, I try to wind them up before Shabbat. I heard, and um, I'm afraid to like really verify it. I heard that for those clocks that are weight driven, you can you can pull up the weights on Shabbat because as long as they continue to go. You oh, know, if you stop them, okay. you can't start them again, but if they continue to go, like it's an ongoing thing, that you can you can do that. I haven't verified it, but I've heard that that was true. Well, there you go. If you have a cuckoo clock that you're uh, concerned about halakhically, please do consult your rabbi uh, before, <laughs> uh, be, before going to do anything on a Shabbat. Paul, thank you very much for being on the New Blue Review. It's been absolutely fascinating. And uh, we look forward to seeing you in New York for for a Shabbat or for a museum or just to wind you up. (laughs) Thank you so much. It's it's been my pleasure. Great to talk with you, Benji. Paul Rodensky there. He is from uh, a range of different institutions in New York, including the Old Broadway Synagogue and uh, the Museum of Jewish uh, Memory Heritage. Excuse me, I keep getting that wrong. Uh, A living memorial to the Holocaust. Definitely go check out both institutions. Well, well worth it and uh, uh, super interesting uh, spaces in general.